Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're listening this morning. Well, this morning we're going to continue with the second part of our interview with Casey Luskin of the Discovery Institute. Casey Luskin is an intelligent design expert who works with the Discovery Institute with Dr. William Dembski and others. He is an attorney with graduate degrees in science and law, giving him expertise in both the scientific and legal dimensions of the debate over evolution. He earned his bachelor's degree and master's degree in earth sciences from the University of California, San Diego, where he studied evolution extensively at both the graduate and undergraduate levels. His law degree is from the University of San Diego, where he focused his studies on First Amendment law, education law, and environmental law. In his role at the Discovery Institute, Mr. Luskin works as research coordinator for the Center for Science and Culture, assisting and defending scientists, educators, and students who seek to freely study and research about the scientific debate over Darwinian evolution and intelligent design. Luskin is co-founder of the Intelligent Design and Evolution Awareness Center, Idea Center, a nonprofit helping students to investigate evolution by starting idea clubs on college and high school campuses across the country. He's also authored a few different books, and he's published some different scientific and legal journal articles. You can hear our first interview with Casey Luskin at godsolutionshow.com. That aired last week. This week, we're going to continue with the second part of our interview with Casey Luskin. We're going to pick up with a discussion on the objections to intelligent design. Again, this is Ben Renfro, who's in the studio with me today, asking Casey Luskin about objections to intelligent design. Can you talk on what some of the common objections to intelligent design are? Yeah, and you know, you mentioned one earlier relating to junk DNA. Uh, we hear that objection quite a bit. It's debated a lot right now, both in the scientific journals and on some of the, the major ID evolution blogs. The argument basically says that our genome is full of useless DNA that doesn't do anything. It's not good for helping us survive. It doesn't do anything for ourselves. And it's basically there only because of millions of years of unguided, uh, basically, evolutionary mutations filling up our genomes with garbage DNA and junk DNA that doesn't do anything. Uh, and what the critics will say is basically that no intelligent designer would fill our genomes with this junk DNA, with a bunch of DNA that doesn't do anything. So it's evidence against intelligent design. And to a certain extent, I, I sort of agree with the framing, at least, of the question. Uh, the framing is, if our genomes really are full of useless DNA, if really, you know, over 50, 50 percent of our genomes are nothing but junk DNA, then yeah, I, I think that probably would count against an intelligent design paradigm. We've heard this objection for years. Uh, going back to really the late 90s, when I was involved with the Idea Club at UC San Diego, we would hear this objection. And I would tell people, you know what? We still, there's a lot we don't know about the genome. Uh, let's wait and see, and let's let the research tell us what the answer is, rather than just assuming that this DNA that we don't understand is just genetic junk. And I'm really glad I took that approach, because now in just the last maybe five years, there's just been a slew, I mean, literally thousands of scientific papers that have come out showing that there is function for this junk DNA. It's really not junk. It actually plays important roles in regulating gene expression, in uh, regulating the timing of development, in all kinds of biological processes. 
this junk DNA is actually highly active and crucial for encoding the way an organism develops, especially in, in, in human beings. So this junk DNA objection we've been hearing for a long time, uh, it was an interesting one, and it's a common objection, but I really think that in the last five years, the scientific, we've seen a scientific revolution take place, essentially, where now we know that the junk DNA is not junk, and intelligent design was right, actually, to predict that we would find function for this junk DNA. And this is exactly what we just talked about. So if you're a naturalistic evolutionary biologist and you're looking at the genome and you don't understand this large percentage of its DNA, you might, because of your naturalistic worldview, infer incorrectly that it's junk. Whereas if you're an intelligent design scientist, you would look at the same picture and say, I don't believe that a designer would design junk, so let's keep looking and see what that really is. In other words, your scientific starting point would get you further down the road as an intelligent design scientist than it would as an evolutionary naturalistic evolutionary scientist. I think this is a perfect example where because of your starting point, you had better answers and could do better research as a scientist than someone who had an inferior starting point, namely Darwinism. I very much agree with you. And I would just say one little caveat. I mean, there are a few, I would call them rogue evolutionary scientists who anticipated that we would find function for the junk. But these were actually people who said, you know what? We are molecular biologists, primarily. We have a feeling, just from their knowledge of how cells work, that this junk DNA is going to turn out to be functional. And they were basically disregarding the predictions of evolution. The evolutionary predictions have been very clear. As a matter of fact, there's a uh, professor of uh, evolutionary biology named Dan Grauer, who has who said, when talking about junk DNA, he said, if, uh, basically, if the DNA is not junk, his exact words are, evolution is wrong. Because so he knows what's at stake here, and you can definitely be guaranteed that the evolutionary mindset discouraged research into function for junk DNA. That definitely is true. Now, I don't want to get too off track here, but a lot of evolutionary scientists would say that there are these repetitive sequences in so-called junk DNA that are evidence of common descent. And I think that whole argument, the pseudogene argument, falls apart if junk DNA is actually not junk, if it's actually functional in some capacity. Is that correct? Well, so, so really quick. So pseudogenes are not uh, repetitive DNA. Repetitive DNA, like line and sign elements or allo elements, that is a type of so-called junk DNA. And we've discovered innumerable functions for that repetitive DNA. Uh, that's different from a pseudogene, though. Pseudogene is another type of what people would call junk DNA. It's, it's not repetitive DNA. It actually, they typically look like a functional gene, but there's some kind of a, well, they would call it a mutation that prevents it from yielding a functional protein. Now, what we're finding with pseudogenes, however, is that they, too, can have function. That just because a, the DNA in a pseudogene does not produce a functional protein, it can still produce RNA that can go out into the cell and perform all kinds of functional roles, including regulating the protein-producing version of the gene. So sometimes there will be a gene version of a, of a gene and a pseudogene version of that same gene, and the gene version creates the protein, but the pseudogene version regulates the production of the protein by producing a similar RNA strand that can go out into the cell and regulate the, the production of the actual protein-producing version of the gene. So pseudogenes definitely can be functional. There have been many examples of functional pseudogenes that have been found, and we're actually just developing the technology now 
to study these pseudogenes. So as far as pseudogenes, are they evidence for our genomes being full of junk? I think that it's really hard to make that argument now because we're finding so many examples of functional pseudogenes, uh, that, and, and, and really we're just we're discovering the technology right now to study them better. So I, I think that we're going to find a lot more evidence for function in pseudogenes as the years go on. We've already found function. We're going to find more. Awesome. And you already spoke a little bit about uh, all the scientific research that's been done in the last five years about the junk DNA and stuff like that. Uh, can you tell us, do intelligent design theorists do research, and what does some of that research actually look like? That's a great question. And the answer to that question is yes. Uh, despite what you might read among some critics on the Internet, who sort of, you know, the facts to them don't matter. They're going to have their little uh, lines and their objections to ID, and the facts really are irrelevant to whether their objections are valid. ID proponents do do research. Uh, one of the major hubs of ID research is funded by Discovery Institute. It's called Biologic Institute. It's a research lab based here in Seattle. And some of the research that they are doing is testing the co-option model of the evolution of new proteins. And so if you mentioned Michael Behe earlier, if you go back to Michael Behe's first big book, Darwin's Black Box, he argued that there are many structures in cells that require all of their parts to function or they don't work. And these kinds of what he called irreducibly complex structures cannot evolve in the step-by-step manner required by Darwinian evolution because either all their parts are there and they work or they're missing a part and they don't work. So they have to have everything present. They can't evolve in a stepwise manner. The typical response from the evolutionary camp was, well, maybe we can evolve these irreducibly complex structures by co-opting or borrowing other parts of your cell, suddenly retooling them so that they can all come together spontaneously to form this complex molecular machine. Well, I always found these co-option sort of speculations from evolutionists to be very very non-compelling. I found them to be implausible and, frankly, unlikely to occur without some kind of intelligent guidance. But that's fine. We can actually test their model by asking, what does it take to take a protein and then retool that protein to do a new job in the cell? And that is the question that biologic researchers are experimentally testing. What they're doing is they took a family of proteins that has very closely related proteins, they have very similar sequences, but they perform different roles in the cell. And so what they try to do is they try to induce mutations into those proteins to to see if they could basically convert protein A to function like protein B. And they wanted to ask basically how many uh, mutations would it take to change the function of a protein to that of a very closely related protein. This is the kind of evolutionary conversion that evolutionary biologists will say is very easy to accomplish. And it's happened all the time in the history of life that a protein could, you know, basically adopt a new function of a very closely related protein. Okay, fine. What does it take to do that? Well, the biologic research uh, is showing that basically it would require more mutations to cause one of these evolutionary conversions to occur than would be likely to arise in the entire history of the Earth. So basically, the plausibility of these co-option scenarios is, is very, very low, because to convert a protein to, con- to change its function to a very similar protein's function would require more mutations than could arise given the entire history of the Earth. So co-option models basically are not plausible in light of this research, and it's really good empirical research. If you're interested, you can read the papers um, on, in the journal's website that they are published in. It's bio-complexity.org. 
bio-complexity.org. And I think it was Dembski, right, that came up with the concept of the universal probability bound and how these things that don't line up with that are statistically literally impossible. They could not possibly have happened. That's exactly right. And, and so that's exactly kind of the way this argument works is that there are so many mutations required, even for a very simple evolutionary conversion, that it would be below the universal probability bound of, of things that are you know, feasible to happen in the entire history of the universe. So that, that's exactly right. He generously set that, I think, at 10 to the 200th. And I mean, some of the statistics, like the linking up of just the right-handed versions of the amino acids and nucleotides for the simplest theoretical organism, would be something like 1 in 10 to the 37,000th power. So, I mean, orders of magnitude beyond the universal probability bound. So when we see these unrealistic statistics, I was actually debating an atheist once here on campus on Darwin's, I forget which birthday, we had an evolution slash creation debate. And I mentioned these statistics to him, and he just he just said, who cares? It happened, so I don't care about the statistics. And that's what we see with the traditional naturalistic evolutionary perspective. I don't don't tell me about the statistics. Don't mention the facts. We're here and so again it's the only game in town uh evolution happened, you know? Is that correct? You know, you, you definitely see that quite a bit and that's the, you put it very well. That's the epitome of the naturalistic mindset. You know, we are going to assume that naturalism is true. We're not actually going to be open minded to the possibility that it's not true. And so we're just going to say, look even if I have no idea how it happened and it seems totally impossible under, you know, normal scientific rules of scientific analysis, I'm still going to believe it. People are welcome to believe that if they want, but let's just be honest about what that is. That's faith. It's actually blind faith. It's yeah. believing something where you have no evidence. In fact, the evidence goes against it. And look, it's a free country. We, we still have religious freedom in, in a couple states these days. So if you want to have blind faith, uh, you're welcome to have blind faith, but let's just not pretend that what you're doing is either scientific or, you know, intellectually compelling, because it's neither of those two things. Unfortunately, what you just described, that kind of mindset is actually holding science back. Well, Dawkins himself, famous evolutionist and atheist, often calls this very statistical enigma for him, not for the intelligent design theorist, but he would call it a stroke of luck, I think betraying the reality <laughs> of what it is. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. Thanks so much for listening. We're talking with Casey Luskin of the Discovery Institute about intelligent design and related issues. I know you're going to love the rest of the show. So do scientists have academic freedom to support intelligent design? That's a good question, and it depends on where those scientists are. I would say in most public state universities today, in biology departments, scientists do not have freedom to support intelligent design. I know many people who are ID proponents in those situations, basically, you know, untenured faculty at uh, public universities, state university biology departments, and they are scared to death of the world finding out that they support intelligent design. So they, they keep their heads down, and they do not talk about their views. Really, they have been, uh, they have been muzzled. And they're not able to, uh, you know, act like scientists. Um, sometimes when scientists speak out about intelligent design, they get uh, put back down. There was a professor a couple of years ago at Ball State University in Indiana. He's a physicist. And essentially what happened was he taught a, a senior class, uh, sort of 
uh, interdisciplinary class that de- dealt with science and society. And this class was approved by the university. Um, everything he did was fully approved by the university. And he looked at sort of the bigger questions in physics, looking at the fine-tuning of the universe for life and what does that mean. The vast majority of the class, probably the you know 14 out of the 16 weeks or so, were simply looking at the evidence from science for the Big Bang, for fine-tuning of the universe. It was just strictly looking at the science. And then at the very end of the class, he investigated some of the different perspectives that are out there to explain the fine-tuning, and one of those perspectives was intelligent design. Well, uh, Jerry Coyne, the well-known atheist uh, evolution blogger on the Internet, he's also an evolutionary biologist at the University of Chicago. He found out about this class at uh, Ball State University, and he then got the Freedom from Religion from Foundation to send a nasty lawyer letter to the university saying, if you don't shut this professor down, we're going to sue you guys. So guess what the university did? Not only did they shut the professor down, they actually enacted a speech code at Ball State University which said that professors are not allowed to support intelligent design in their classes. And so this is what's literally going on on some of our university campuses right now is the evolutionists are so afraid of having a discussion that they are enacting speech codes to prevent intelligent design from being supported in the classroom. This is really dangerous to some of the foundational freedoms of our society when professors are not free to talk about their views, even controversial ones. I mean, if you don't have academic freedom to talk about a minority controversial view, then academic freedom means nothing, because you always have academic freedom to talk about you know, a majority view that everybody agrees with. Academic freedom is only tested when somebody expresses a minority view. But this professor was not using his class to proselytize. He was not using it to promote religion. He was using it to talk about different you know, legitimate scientific and philosophical views out there but intelligent design was not allowed. So, unfortunately, th- this is not an anomaly. We've seen a number of cases like this over the years. And I would say that in many places, the answer to your question definitely is no. Scientists do not have academic freedom to talk about intelligent design. We've always heard about the attack of religion on science and how historically, and most people are referring to the Catholic Church several hundred years ago, how the church opposed science and went against science. It looks like now we're seeing the exact opposite, right? We're seeing the evolutionary battle on science and debate. It's frustrating, to say the least. So I want to know a little bit about your organization, IDEAS. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So um, IDEA stands for Intelligent Design and Evolution Awareness, and it's basically a 501c3 nonprofit that helps students to start uh, IDEA clubs on college and high school campuses where they can discuss and debate intelligent design. And this goes back to, I think what I mentioned earlier, that when I was an undergraduate at UC San Diego, some friends and I started this, uh, the first idea club to do this, and it was a real success. The purpose of that club was to provide a forum where everybody felt free to come and have these conversations about origins. If you're an evolutionist, you're completely welcome. If you're an ID proponent, you're completely welcome. If you're a creationist or whatever, whatever you are, you're completely welcome to come and express your views on the topic of origins at these clubs. And these clubs are really trying to provide a forum for what most university classrooms don't allow, which is, you know, sort of an open discussion on the topic of origins. As we talked about earlier, most uh, university classes discuss and promote only the pro-evolutionary viewpoint. So if students want to talk about other views, they don't have that opportunity. So idea clubs are trying to fill in the gap of education that's being left by sort of the, you know, what's often sadly this sort of evolutionary dogmatic view that's that's taught in in a non uh educational manner, and they're trying to fill in that gap and let students have these 
discussions and learn about other views. So if, uh, if any uh, listeners are interested in this, they can go to the website, www.ideacenter.org. They can learn about these clubs. And I should mention, these are extracurricular clubs. They're not trying to change anything in the curriculum. They're simply extracurricular student-led clubs that are done outside of, the, you know, of classroom time. But they're a lot of fun, and they're a great way to get people interested in the topic. Now, what about some of your other work, any books that you've written? You want to mention any of those, Tess? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. So my, that, the Idea Center that I mentioned is sort of something I do on the side for fun. Uh, I started that when I was in college. My day job now, though, is I work for a different organization that's, that's separate from Idea called Discovery Institute. Uh, we talked about that earlier, and part of what I do there is to help uh, develop curriculum so that people can you know, talk about this issue. I, I wrote a uh, textbook for private and homeschool use a couple years ago called Discovering Intelligent Design. I co-wrote the book with a couple of uh, homeschool educators, and basically it's a comprehensive introduction to the scientific evidence for intelligent design uh, in biology, but also in cosmology. We didn't talk about that very much today, sort of from the fine-tuning of the universe and the evidence from the Big Bang that there is a designer of the universe. Um, And so that textbook, Discovering Intelligent Design, looks at that evidence and tries to introduce it in a very easy-to-understand fashion. Uh, You can check out that book at the website, www.discoveringid.org. Um, and maybe I'll just mention one other book. If you're interested in the topic of human origins, uh, this is not a textbook. This is just a book that I co-wrote with a couple of my colleagues at Discovery a couple years ago. Um, it's called Science and Human Origins. And we look at the question of where do humans come from uh, from a number of different angles. We look at the fossil evidence. We look at the genetic evidence. And we look at the population genetics as well, not just the genomics, but actually the population genetic evidence, and asking whether or not it's feasible to say that humans evolved from ape-like ancestors. And it's a short book. If you're interested in the topic, you could probably read it in, a, you know, in just a few hours uh, on a plane ride or something like that. And it's a great, um, I think, critique of the standard evolutionary account of human origins. So those are a couple uh, projects I've, I've worked on the last couple years here. Awesome. And where can people find more about you? Well, the best place to go is uh, www.discovery.org. That's Discovery Institute's website. Um, a lot of my writings, though, are found on Discovery's um, news site, which is Evolution News. So the website there is www.evolutionnews.org. And it's a great website to stay up to date on the debate over evolution. We have lots of different contributors who are scientists and scholars that weigh in on the debate over evolution uh, and current current uh, events, current uh, developments, scientific discoveries. They weigh on it from lots of different angles, from science, from philosophy, from law, uh, from even uh, theological viewpoints sometimes. Uh, so it's a great place to stay informed and up-to-date on the debate. And again, that's www.evolutionnews.org. Awesome. Well, it's been a great show. Any last thoughts? No, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And I know that you know, you guys get broadcasted in sort of a college campus, college town environment, and I would just encourage students who are interested in this issue to keep an open mind and make sure that they do what they can to investigate this topic um, for themselves. You know, certainly take courses in evolution, understand the evolutionary viewpoint, but don't stop there. Uh, go out and proactively investigate views that are maybe not being talked about in your classes and, and learn about those views like intelligent design from the proponents. I mean, read what the critics had to say as well, but make sure you read what the proponents are saying or you really want to understand the arguments. And on one last thing, for any students who are listening, if you're interested in this debate, Discovery Institute has a summer program 
called our Summer Seminars on Intelligent Design. It runs every July, and if you're interested in learning more about that, we actually are accepting applications for this summer's program right now. And the website, if you want to learn more, is www.discovery.org slash S as in Sam, E, M as in Mary. So discovery.org slash S-E-M. And you can learn about our summer seminars, and it's a great opportunity for students to come and really just get a, a fully intensive crash course on intelligent design from the top scientists in the field. Awesome. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Again, this was just the first part of the show. You can go to godsolutionshow.com to get the rest of the interviews. And you can find out more about Casey Luskin, the Discovery Institute, and Intelligent Design at discovery.org. Again, that's discovery.org. So please visit discovery.org today to learn more about Casey Luskin and the Discovery Institute and Intelligent Design. I hope that you realize that all of this means something. There really is a creator that intelligently designed this entire universe and this world. The evidence for that is overwhelming. Again, go to godsolutionshow.com and here are some of our past interviews on all these different things. But the reality is that the Bible tells us that God loves you dearly and that he sent his son, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, to live with us, to live a perfect life that we could never live and to die on the cross to pay for our sins something that we could never do for ourselves. The Bible says that each of us are a sinner that's separated from God and that only through Christ's payment for our sins on the cross can we be made right with God. And if we don't become right with God through Christ's payment at the cross, we'll be left eternally separated from God. That's horrible news. Thankfully, the Bible says that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus can be forgiven, can be adopted into Christ's family, and can enjoy a lifetime of meaning and purpose on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. If you've never taken that step, I'd ask you to do that this morning. Putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and verbalizing that through prayer. You could do that right now by saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and were risen again. I believe that you did all this so that I could experience life in you so that I could be forgiven. Please come into my life. Please forgive my sins. Please be my Savior and my Lord, and please make me the kind of person that you want me to be. The Bible says that if you take that step today, that you'll be adopted into his family, that you'll be made right with God, and that you can look forward to a life of meaning and purpose on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. Again, if you've never taken that step, my hope and my prayer is that you take that step this morning. Why wait? It's the greatest step that you could ever take, and I hope that you'll take that step this morning. Well, it was a great show today. Again, you can get this show and last week's show, both interviews with Casey Luskin of the Discovery Institute at godsolutionshow.com. And while you're there, you could also see a list of local churches and the times and the places that they meet, and you could find one to visit this morning. I can't think of a better way to go this morning. So check out godsolutionshow.com and see a list of local churches and pick one to visit this morning. I can personally vouch for everything that you'll find there on our site. Anyway, while you're there, I hope that you'd also leave a comment or two and let me know what you think about the show and what you'd like to hear in the future. There is a contact form that you could use there to get in touch with us, and I hope that you'll do that. Anyway, it's been a lot of fun on the air with you this morning. Before I get off the air, I have to say happy birthday to 
the two most important women in my life. First of all, happy birthday, Mom. I am so thankful for you and for all that you've done for me and for your passion for Jesus Christ and your willingness to risk for him. Happy birthday, Mom. I'm so thankful for you, and I hope that you have a wonderful time celebrating your birthday. Also, Aaron Joy, my sweet wife, happy birthday. I'm thankful for the wonderful gift that you are and the blessing that you are to me. I'll thank God for you every day till the day I die. Thank you so much for the incredible joy that you are to spend a life with. I hope that you have the best day of your life. Happy birthday. I love you. And thank you so much for all that you do for me, Aaron Joy. All right. Well, happy birthday, Mom, and happy birthday, Aaron. And thank you all for listening. It's been a wonderful show. Again, get these shows at godsolutionshow.com. Don't miss them. And tune in next week. It's going to be a great time back on the air with you next Sunday. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And I really believe that with all my heart. And I hope that you'll investigate the evidence for him if you haven't before and come to a point of knowing God personally, receiving his gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And if you do know him, I hope that you'll walk stronger with him than ever before, confident that the evidence supports your faith. Thanks again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. We'll see you next week. <laughs>